so much to the band, um, as always, for leading us. As Josh said earlier, I'm, I'm Adam, Adam Zapp, one of the uh, pastors of this body and um, one of the elders of, of this body. Uh, and Josh and I are, I guess, similarly dressed tonight. So that's, that's great. Um, so <laughs> it's really a joy to be with you uh, tonight especially in this capacity, just to be able to bring a, a message and a word um, of what I believe the Lord's put on my heart for this body and really for this specific group of people in this specific room at this specific time. I think the Lord is intentional about that sort of thing, so I'm just very excited to be able to do this. Um, as Joel mentioned uh, last week and Josh kind of touched on, I'm going to be talking about the abiding life tonight. Um, so this message is entitled, The Simplicity of Abiding. The Simplicity of Abiding. Um, abiding is a term I think that is very familiar to us, especially around here, I would hope, and in church culture in general. Um, we hear abiding a lot, and that's for good reason. Uh, abiding is a concept that is fundamental to the Christian life and fundamental to a proper understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus. Um, so I think it's, it's very important that we have a good grasp of that and that we, we kind of understand abiding in the right way. So that's what I'll be talking about. And specifically, the simplicity of it. Uh, abiding points to a relationship. And one side of that relationship uh, has a very simple life. Um, and tonight, that's my argument. That's what I'm trying to prove to you, that for the one who is called to abide, life is simple. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, walk through some scripture, uh, look at the picture that it kind of paints about the abiding life, and then we're going to look at the simplicity of that and then talk about the implications. Kind of, what do we do now uh, that this life is available and that it's simple? Uh, so... Scripture. Won't you turn with me to our old friend, Psalm 23? <laughs> psalm 23 is a common, a common psalm, and it's a common uh, place in Scripture. I think in in our church culture, and that, again, that's for good reason. Um, maybe it's too common. Maybe it's kind of cliche in some in some ways, but uh, I think it's so so close to us because. Um, it's just so rich and it's so deep. Um, it's just really a wellspring of, of truth and that sort of thing. So, and we've been through it uh, as a body before together, and I think that's great. I, I think we can't really get enough of it. Um, so, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Psalm 23 over us right quick, and then we'll talk about it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful. A beautiful psalm, a beautiful thing to really internalize, to memorize, to start your morning with, and to keep with you throughout the day. Um, So some general things about this psalm. Uh, It's a psalm of David. um, And it's, it's David writing really to communicate what he believes about his relationship with God. And uh, just kind of the interplay there. Uh, it's really written to, to communicate trust and confidence that David has in God. And it's kind of broken into two sections. Uh, verses 1 through 4, he creates an image talking about a shepherd with his sheep. And in verses 5 and 6, he switches to talking about the host of a banquet um, and his honored guest. So we're going to... We're going to go through it, that in those two sections. And for each, for each section, we're going to kind of have one big idea. Um, so as we kind of walk through slowly, uh, I want us to keep in mind that Psalm 23 paints a picture of the abiding life. And I just, we can't miss that this is something that is available. That David is not writing a fairy tale. He is writing about his experience with God. Um, And he's just using the picture of the shepherd and the sheep and the host and the guest. So very important as we go through, think about your understanding of God and think about where this challenges it because there's so much truth in here uh, that can kind of sanctify us in that way. So verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right away, we see the identity of the shepherd as being God. Um, This is the God of the Bible, the master of reality, the creator of the universe. And with that identity comes his character and all of his perfection and his attributes. So already, uh, David is telling us how great this shepherd is. And so much is implied from there. And he kind of gets into more detail so we have this, this great shepherd, uh, and he says, my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd. This is a, a psalm that is intended to be personal. It's individual. I think we'd miss a lot if we just looked at it in terms of a sheep or in terms of a shepherd with a flock of sheep. Um, and I know that's what comes to mind when we think of a shepherd a lot of times. I know that's true for me, but this is a unique way of talking about the individual and the personal aspect of of our relationship with God. So we can't miss that. It's a very very personal psalm. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, This is pretty obviously communicating that this is the kind of shepherd that meets my needs. I like to read this part of the verses. Um, I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Um, 
All of the sheep's deepest desires are met. And that is because the shepherd knows them and the shepherd seeks to meet them for the sheep. There is love there and there is care and they're together in that way. So that's verse 1. Verse 2, he goes into some more detail about this. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. And then into 3, he restores my soul. This is going into more detail, communicating provision and care uh, for the sheep by the shepherd. The green pastures are nourishment. They're a place for the sheep to graze. And the still waters are a place to rest. The ESV says in a footnote, um, you leave me beside uh, waters of rest. I think that's a great way to put it. The shepherd is obviously concerned with how the sheep is doing, concerned with the health of the sheep and the rest of the sheep. And that's a beautiful picture. Um, He restores my soul. Soul is a very heavy word. It's kind kind of a mysterious word in a way, but I think a good way to read this verse is um, he restores my life, he restores my vitality, my will to live, uh, he restores my will to follow him even. You think about that progression, nourishment, rest, and he restores my vitality. It's all in the same vein. Um, and we just went through talking about um, Boaz and Ruth, and there's a place where Ruth says uh, that her Redeemer restores her life, I believe, and that's a good picture here. She wasn't dead, but her vitality and her status and that sort of thing is restored. And that's what the shepherd does for his sheep. So already in three and a half verses of this, it is apparent that the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd is a beautiful one. And it's one where the, the shepherd provides so, so well for the, for the sheep and perfectly, in fact. But... Before we move on, I want to step back and talk about uh, the simplicity of this relationship. What, what simplicity can we find in here? So there's two roles, uh, one of the, the shepherd and one of the sheep, obviously. And let's think about that as, as two kind of lists of tasks, a list of responsibilities, um, as we kind of try to find the simplicity here. Um, what does the sheep have to do and what does the shepherd have to do? Well, in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. That already implies that the Lord is the shepherd. The sheep is not the shepherd. The sheep does not have to shepherd itself. We do not have to shepherd ourselves. Um, I shall not want. The sheep does not need to be primarily concerned with its own wants and its own needs. Uh, That's the shepherd's job. Because of who the shepherd is, Uh, he's going to meet those needs. Um, That also implies that the shepherd knows the sheep well enough to meet its needs. That's the personal care, personal knowing. On to verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, The shepherd knows how to get to the green pastures. The shepherd knows how to lead the sheep there to the nourishment that they want and the nourishment that they need. And the same goes for the still waters also implies that the shepherd knows when the sheep are hungry and he knows when they're thirsty and when they need rest. Um, he, restores, he restores their souls. 
He knows when their souls need restoring, when they're in a bad way and they need to kind of be uh, set back on the path. And he knows how to restore the soul of a sheep and he knows how to restore the soul of every sheep personally. That's the kind of shepherd that we have. So considering all those tasks, that's, that's what we can put on the shepherd side. That's all the shepherd needs to do. So what about the sheep? Um, well, the sheep just needs to follow uh, one thing. The sheep simply needs to keep the shepherd in sight and take one step at a time behind the shepherd. And then all these things happen. That's simple. You look at the shepherd's list of tasks and you look at his life and what's included and it's complicated. It's a little more complex. Um, But we have a perfect shepherd so he can handle that sort of thing. And we don't have to worry about it. Uh, Moving on to to verse 4 or actually the second half of 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Um, so the shepherd is leading, and paths of righteousness, uh, I think the ESV has a footnote that says, he leads me in, in the right paths. I think that's a better way of saying it. Righteousness is another heavy word that can be confusing for us if we're not exactly sure to how, how to apply it. Um, I like to think of, of righteousness as right relation, right relation to God, right relation to morality, whatever it may be. And we can think of these paths that he leads us down as paths that are in right relation to where we need to be going. So simply, they're the right paths. They're the correct paths. This is the kind of shepherd that leads us the right way. Uh, And he does it for his namesake. This is is very important. Um, if he is leading us down these bright paths for his namesake, that means, that reveals something about his motivation. His motivation is primarily within himself to lead us. He does it for his namesake, uh, for his, his fame and his reputation and his goodness, and with a name comes the character that is tied to it, and that's something that he's not going to fail at, and that's something that he's not going to let let go by the wayside, his name. He does it for his namesake. So it's primarily rooted in him. And that is extremely comforting. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. So verse four. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David has already told us that this is a shepherd that leads his sheep down the right path, down the correct path. And David is writing this psalm as a sheep that is following. And yet he finds himself in the valley of the shadow of death. Or we could say in the valley of deep darkness. Just a rough, a rough spot. So... Um, he finds himself there and yet he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. How can he have that comfort? How can he be so okay with it? Um, well, what's difference, what is the difference between 
uh, the green pasture, for instance, and the valley of the shadow of death. The sheep is still there. The shepherd is still there, and he hasn't changed. The circumstances have changed. That's all that's different. Just the setting. Um, I think it's, it's so easy for us to be bogged down by circumstances and we lose sight of the shepherd. Um, even, even through all of this and in, in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, whether it be for the sheep, like a narrow valley or a dark valley with things that could jump out and attack or maybe it's a, a ridge that's very steep, something like that. Um, the shepherd has not changed and the role of the shepherd has not changed and the role of the sheep has not changed either. It's still just as simple and the shepherd or the sheep still just needs to follow behind the shepherd one step at a time. And in, and in doing that, the, the circumstances and the, the scary valley is still in the sheep's peripheral vision. He's still following. He can see this stuff, but his focus is on the shepherd, and that's how he can get through. He's not swayed by circumstances. And, you know, we're a community, and we know each other deeply, and I know that some of us are swayed by the circumstances a lot of the time. Um, It's easy to get distracted, and it's easy to get off the path. And the shepherd, he hasn't changed. We just have to trust him. And he will lead us down um, the right paths. Oh, I had a story for this part. Um, Let's do that. Uh, I was at a... um, a family reunion last, last year, I believe, and I, I was standing with my, my brother talking, and, and my nephew was playing on some toy, some car thing, and one of the uh, lesser-known cousins comes up and <laughs> comes up behind him and, and begins to push this car thing pretty fast and in a pretty you know, unexpected direction, and it was just really cool because immediately in that moment, my nephew turned and locked eyes with my brother. And that was, I just had to stop and, like, am I inside of a teaching point right now? Like, what is this? But his circumstances changed, and his setting changed, and it was frightening. And his reflex was to look into the eyes of his father and and he knew that everything would be okay. And that's, that's the connection we have with the shepherd as sheep in the valley of the shadow of death even. So the last part of that verse, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a very common image. You know, you have the shepherd with his rod and his staff um, representing kind of protection and guidance and discipline uh, this is a shepherd that, that cares enough to do these things for the sheep. It's, it's pretty obvious. And uh, David even goes so far to say they comfort me. So the guidance and the, the discipline even and the protection of, of the shepherd, they comfort David. 
And I like to think about it as they allow him to sleep at night. The protection and even the discipline. He has hope in the protection. He trusts it. And the discipline, he's not afraid of. He appreciates it. And he's able to sleep at night with these things. So we can walk walk back through the second half of three and into verse four and look at, at simplicity one more time for the sheep and for the shepherd. Um, so he leads us in paths of righteousness. We do not have to know where to go. We just need to follow the shepherd. Uh, he knows those paths and he knows the right paths and he knows the start and the, the end of the journey and he knows exactly how to get where he's going, and he will always lead in the right path. So that's his responsibility. We don't have to worry about navigating for ourselves. Um, and he does it for, for his namesake. That's simple because the sheep does not need to worry about convincing the shepherd to lead him. He is already leading him. Um, this is the idea that if you are in the flock of the Lord, he is already committed to you because he does it for his name's sake. He's not going to fail. He is already committed to you. I think that's key. Nothing you can do demotivates the shepherd from leading you. Nothing. He is already committed to you. So even in the hardest terrain, in the darkest places, in verse 4, the sheep still just needs to follow and keep the shepherd in focus. We don't have to guide or to protect ourselves directly. Our protection is found in following the shepherd. And I know that's, that's difficult, but in following him we find protection. We have to trust that. And we find discipline and correction and all that good stuff. So that's, that's kind of the end of verse 4. Um, the first image that David uses but before we move on, uh, what is one thing that David doesn't even mention? David does not mention how long the path is, and he doesn't mention how, f- how far along it he is. You think about us taking a journey, and these are things we're worried about. We want to get there. We want to be done with the traveling part. And yet David doesn't even mention that. And I think that's because the shepherd makes the journey so good and he sustains and everything is provided for in the journey and he trusts about the destination. He doesn't need to worry about it. So the story of the the sheep and the shepherd, they describe a reality that's available for us. Living life from the Father one step at a time even in the hardest places All the sheep does is focus on the shepherd and follow. So follow. That's our big idea for verses 1 through 4. Follow. Walk. Just follow behind the shepherd. Um, Moving on to verses 5 and 6, our our big idea here is going to be to remain. So follow and remain. Two ways of looking at the, uh, the abiding life. So verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. 
right off, right off David is uh, clearly not talking about sheep anymore. Uh, he's talking about uh, the host of a banquet and his honored guest. Uh, and these verses kind of show uh, God's hospitality and his abundance for the one that he has prepared a table for. So I, th- I think this is a pretty straightforward image, and especially it enhances verse 2. Um, th- we could maybe think of this as a specific example of the green pastures and the still waters that he leads us beside. One thing I want to point out, uh, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, why does he talk about his enemies? Uh, this is usually taken in two ways. One could be that the table is before his enemies um, because they are at the banquet as prisoners of war. This is part of the, the warfare culture back then that uh, the prisoners taken would have to watch the victors enjoy their banquet, their victory celebration. So that is a, we can, we can see that as a good time for, for, uh, for David. It's a, it's a victory time. Uh, another way to take it is that in the presence of my enemies, is my enemies are all around me. And it's difficult. And they're trying to consume me. And yet you prepare a table before me. You still provide abundantly for me. So two, two interesting ways to look at it. They have one thing in common, though. Uh, and that's the position of the table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, to me, that paints a very clear image of the table being closer to the guest than the enemies are, no matter where uh, no matter how we understand the enemies, the table's always closer. And we can see that as God's abundance and God's goodness always being closer to us than either our victory over our enemies in the good times or the enemies trying to consume us in the difficult times. His, his abundance and his goodness is always closest and always there for us to enjoy and to focus on uh, rather than these other things. So that's, that's verse 5. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 6. Goodness and mercy, God's goodness and God's mercy. Mercy being a word that, is, that really fails us in the English language. This is the idea of God's, yes, mercy, but his love, his loving kindness, that cool compound word we see sometimes, uh, his steadfast love. Um, these are all ways of saying the same thing, but, but still I think these are all kind of church words that we have trouble pulling out of the context of, of sermons and teachings. Uh, and we can, I think a cool way of, of saying this is your goodness and perfectly committed love shall follow me all the days of my life. I think we can relate to the idea of commitment because we've all been uh, kind of betrayed. We've all been, uh, to know, we've all known people that have kind of dropped the ball on us as far as commitment goes. But this is the kind of host that will never drop the ball on commitment. Anything he promises us, anything, um, 
that's within his character, he's just going to do. So we have that kind of faithful host. And these things will follow me all the days of my life. They will pursue me. His goodness and his perfectly committed love will pursue me, and they will find me, and they will catch me, and I will rest in that and enjoy it. And then, you know, that, that even leads him to say, and I'll, I want to stay here forever. This is, the host has invited him into his house. It's very personal. And he's saying, I want to stay here forever. I never want to leave this banquet. There's no banquet I'd rather be at. And so, that's how he ends the psalm, that he's perfectly satisfied. So if we step back a little and look for the simplicity in that last image in verses 5 and 6, we see that God as host has prepared everything. Uh, He's prepared the table. He got uh, the cup and the oil and the perfume for that. And um, he's just done it all. He has prepared this banquet for the guest. So that means that the guest did not have to worry about any of that stuff. He just came and and received. Um, It doesn't say that, it doesn't say you got your servants to prepare a table for me. It's you prepared a table for me. And that's that's personal. Um, And if we look at the character of this banquet and all that the host is doing, this isn't the kind of banquet that in planning the host was like, oh, that guy's coming over. And then he rolls his eyes. He's like, oh, well, where's the table? Where's that cup? You know, this is, this is the kind of banquet that the, this is the kind of banquet that the host is excited to throw and he is enjoying that the guest is with him. And we are the guest. And he invites us to this banquet. Again, our big image for verses 5 and 6 is to remain. Come to this banquet and just stay here. Remain here with me in my abundance. That's what he's saying to us. You think about the idea of to remain in God, to remain in Christ. Um, Nate, if you could put John uh, 15, 4 up there. Unfortunately, we don't have time to uh, really go through John 15, but I think this is a very good parallel image to, to um, the idea to remain in God. And it says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. And that's Christ talking about his role uh, and God's role as well in that chapter. But this is just the idea. It pushes forward that we get life from God and we get life from Christ, that it flows from him and to us. And this is a reality for us. This is a, a spiritual reality that we can live in, and it transforms us from the inside out. We'll talk about that a little more. But these, these are the two big ideas of Psalm 23 to follow and to remain. The sheep simply needs to follow the shepherd one step at a time right behind him and the guest at the banquet simply needs to sit down and enjoy the banquet and to be satisfied and not get up. 
very simple. And that's the simplicity of the abiding life for us. We're in those simple roles. And the shepherd and the host, they have the complicated task. And we have to let God do those things. We can't try to take control. Uh, We just have to enjoy him. We really just have to enjoy him. So we've seen that the abiding life is a simple one. That God the shepherd does all the hard work and, and that he's always available to his sheep and always good and he's perfect in the way he cares for us. So why don't we do that more? Why don't we abide in him more? Why don't we just follow? Why don't we just remain? This is a simple life, but we complicate it. And I want to talk about a a few of the ways that I think we complicate this life um, and talk about kind of how God wants to heal us of that. The first thing is that we believe that abiding is an incidental thing. The abiding life is a, a constant spiritual reality that we cannot turn off. That's why it's called the abiding life. There's not only certain times when you consider whether or not you're abiding or, or it's just an, an always applicable truth. The shepherd never ceases to be the shepherd and we never cease to be the sheep. And every moment of the day, the abiding life applies. So, so what does that mean? Are we supposed to abide in Christ even in the mundane times if we go to the grocery store? Is that, is that a time to abide in Christ? How do we understand that? I think, I think some of our of church culture kind of paints that abiding just consists of these spiritual moments, these ultra-spiritual moments, and that's how we characterize our abiding life, but that's false. The abiding life, like I said, is... It's always on. It's always time to abide. Um, look at the life of the sheep. It never stops following the shepherd. There's no, there's no break from that part of it. So humans, we're always going to be following something, and we're always going to be remaining in something. And the abiding life, obviously we make the choice to remain in God and to follow God. We can think of Abiding, and this is key. We can think of abiding as a posture of the heart or the position of our heart in relation to God. And that's a very, for me, a very useful visual image. Where is your heart facing? Where is your heart looking for leadership? And where is your heart looking to remain, to stay? Are our hearts and our souls open to instruction and to leading. I think we all know what it feels like for our hearts to wander. Uh, And that's something we always need to be mindful of. And unfortunately, uh, the time when we find that that happened is because of some action we take. And that's not where it starts. It starts with the posture of your heart. If your heart is looking looking at the shepherd, staying one step behind him, always following it's not going to veer off somewhere um, and then at the level of action uh, kind of betray our characters. It's not, going to, it's not going to do that sort of thing. I hope that makes sense, the posture of our hearts. I know there's, there's always a chance 
to enter into a, a prayerful moment when we can sort of unravel where we are, unravel our deepest desires and see if it's really pointing at God or if it's not. It's, it's a subtle change in the deepest part of us that causes big changes in the external parts of us. So we can look at the life of Jesus for this. Um, you, you think it's very easy to say for, oh, well, of course Jesus was always abiding. And then, but when we really think about it, we probably think about times like when he gave the Sermon on the Mount or when he was doing all these uh, miracles, that sort of thing. But, but what about when Jesus was uh, walking from town to town with his friends? What about, Jesus, what about when Jesus was down, sitting down for a meal? Or when he, you know, we think he calmed the storm, but what about when he uh, went to sleep before he calmed the storm and then was waking up? Those are times where we can abide. Even in the mundane times, we can always examine our hearts. And I think that's really, really important. We abide, this is how we abide through suffering. Any this is the, uh, the valley of the shadow of death, suffering bad circumstances, just checking our hearts and making sure it's pointed at the Father. So there's no off-season for abiding. It's not incidental, and if we think it is, we're complicating things. Uh, a second thing is kind of connected, related to our devotions. Uh, we have to see our devotions, prayer, community, um, the study of scripture we have to see that as part of the abiding life not some like checkpoint into the abiding life um, and just imagine just the beauty of the shepherd leading you to pray the shepherd leading you to study his word the shepherd leading you into community and growth there that's what he wants to do we can't look at these things just as actions and what I kind of wrote for this is that we focus on action instead of relationship in a lot of times. You think about our prayer lives, that's part of abiding too. Uh, I heard someone describe a certain kind of prayer life as just shooting up flares to God just in times of extreme distress to get God's attention. Well, if we're following one step behind the shepherd, why would you shoot a flare to get his attention if he's right there. How do we see the shepherd? How close is he to us? The reality is that he is not far away. He is never far away. So in our devotions, he's with us. They're not just simple tasks. And kind of getting to the end of all this, um, Two more things. One, and I think they're related. One is that we don't want to send, we don't want to surrender our wills, and this is a big one. How do we complicate the simple life of abiding? We do not want to surrender our wills. So, what is what is the will? Uh, the will is the part of us that, from where our our decisions and our actions flow from. It's as simple as that, <clears throat> kind of the control center of our actions. 
we have to, uh, we really have to kill our pride and see ourselves as sheep. So many of us, when we veer off the path, we're stopping to see ourselves as sheep anymore, and we start to see ourselves as shepherds, and we make really, really bad shepherds. It's not what we're made for. We're made to be sheep behind the perfect shepherd. So you look at, you look at the will of the sheep, and you look at the will of the shepherd, considering the simplicity that we talked about, a sheep that only has a task of following is not going to know how to lead. His will is not going to be good uh, to lead himself. It's, it's the will of the shepherd um, that is better, and we have to realize that. So we have to surrender our wills. But it's not... It's not I don't know, that sounds too simple. We cannot just leave it at that. Um, you think about the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd and the sh- with the sheep following so close to the shepherd um, I think about our human relationships and with just simple truths like if someone new comes into your life a good friend, someone you're very impressed with um, and they have some kind of either gesture or saying that they always do, uh, if you really appreciate them and, and you see them as a part of your life, you're going to start to subconsciously integrate things about them into your life. Um, I hope that makes sense. My, my mom is from, from Mississippi, and whenever she talks on the phone with her sisters from Mississippi, she immediately picks up a Mississippi accent somehow. Um, but that's, do you see the idea that the sheep is so close to the shepherd that the way the shepherd lives his life begins to affect the sheep? Uh, it's too simple to say we just have to surrender our wills and leave it at that. But in trust, we surrender our wills. David wrote this, this psalm, and in verse 1, I shall not want. How does he know he doesn't have to want? He took a first trusting step to follow the shepherd. And as he takes those steps, he sees how good the shepherd is. And as we take those steps with Jesus, uh, he begins to change us. The proximity to his goodness, it changes us. And our wills are slowly conformed into his will. Slowly, slowly. Because if it was too fast, it would not be good for us. That is, that is his love for us. He is changing us. He is changing us slowly as we follow him. So the surrender of the will becomes a transformation of the will. And walking with the shepherd becomes so natural for us if we just take these small, small steps of trust, one at a time. And that's, that's all verse 1 through 4 is, taking those steps. And all this goodness comes to us. Um, I heard a, a cool thing that someone said about Jesus' purity versus our purity, that we have the kind of purity that uh, if we touch something unclean, we become unclean. But Jesus has the kind of purity that if he touches us, we become clean. He doesn't become unclean. There's that transfer there and that sanctification. So we're not alone in in this this surrender of our will. We have a perfect example in Jesus. Uh, Our shepherd already lived the perfect life of the sheep and he came 
and he took on flesh and he denied himself over and over and he was in agony in the garden and he said, Lord, not my will, but yours. And don't you see, that's verse, that's verse four. He was in the valley of the shadow of death and what did he do? He just focused on the shepherd. His circumstances were peripheral and yes, he noticed them and he talked about them and they affected him in some way, but not to shift his focus. And see, abiding was him, abiding for him was even admitting to God his moment of, of just need in that time. And God can handle all that. So we have Jesus as an example. He obeyed and abided uh, to the extreme and enabled this life for us. So it's not just a simple surrender of the will. He's doing more, but we do have to surrender that will. And the last thing I think is, I know this is huge for me, that we have to remember who we're surrendering our will to. It, it involves a ton of trust and a ton of, of love to do that, um, to sur- really surrender our wills to God but we have to consider who we're surrendering our wills to. And I think that has a lot to do with how we look at the shepherd. If you look in your current walk with Christ, if you look at him and you look at the shepherd, what is, how is he looking at you? What do his eyes look like? We have a shepherd that always looks at us with eyes of love, Always, always with eyes of love. We go back to verse 3 of this psalm. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He is already committed to us. It's for his namesake. Nothing, like we said, nothing you can do can demotivate the shepherd to lead you. And he is fully committed to you. We have to be honest with ourselves and look at, and look at how we see him looking at us have we, put something, have we put something there that's not really there? Have we put a mask on his face that looks like disappointment? Have we, how are we seeing that Jesus somehow is too disappointed in us and where we are with our walk to lead us? He's not. That's false. Do we think he's looking away, that the shepherd does not want to lead you as a sheep? That's false too. Do you think he's looking at you with eyes of anger? That's not it either. This, you see, this is a perfect shepherd, one that has perfect love for us. And we have to be honest with ourselves about how we, how we see him. And we can't let that stuff build up because it's all just false. And don't you see how these things, they, compli- they complicate the simple life. We have to trust him. We just have to follow and we just have to remain in him. Remain in his loving gaze, and we're changed. We don't want to be the same, and he changes us. One step, one step at a time, and that's the abiding life, and it's simple. How are you trying to complicate the simple abiding life that God has given us? How am I trying to complicate it? We have to be honest with ourselves, because 
The shepherd is waiting to lead us. He is ready to lead us. So we have to surrender our wills and realize that he is better than anything. We were made to live for so much more than our own wills. We were made to, to live for so much more than the will of a sheep. We were made to live for the will of the perfect shepherd, and it's available. So let's follow him and remain in him and be transformed in the process. And that's what we were made for, so let's, let's pursue this life. Let's pray. Lord, you are the good shepherd. God, I thank you so much that you love every sheep in your flock. God, and you are committed to them. God, that you would never let, let anyone go. God, I thank you for all the truths that we've seen in, in Psalm 23, God, and that it continues to be a wellspring for us and for our body. Lord, I just ask that for those of us in here that are following you step by step, Lord, that you would encourage them. God, and for those of us in here that have been distracted by the circumstances, Lord, that you would pull us back, that we would see you and realize that you want to you lead us right back out of those circumstances onto your path and that you will do that without a question, God. There are those of us in here, Lord, that they think they're too far gone. It's just not the case, God. I'm so thankful that you have, you have loved us in such a way that we can't fall out of your grasp before in your flock, Lord. Teach us how to surrender our wills, Lord, and, ch- and change us. Change us as we follow you, God. And there, there could be those that are not of your flock in here, Lord, and I just ask that you would speak to them tonight and that they would find you because you are never far away. Our shepherd is never far away. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to sing some songs now that I think are, are very applicable to the abiding life. So let's do that.